Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and my co-host, who, well, frankly, puts up with me, Vincent M. Wales, is also here. How's your week been, buddy? My week has been awesome. How about yours? Pretty good. I understand we have a guest, somebody that you have met in person and who you've heard speak. We do, yes. Uh, Dr. Scott Zeller is with us today. He's a leading expert on psychiatric emergencies across the country and even around the world. Scott is here to talk with us today about agitation. And Dr. Zeller, as I understand it, that has nothing to do with that little device in your laundry washing machine. You're absolutely correct on that. Um, although it's interesting, I was just uh, using that agitator uh, a little bit before you called. Did my Excellent. week's laundry today. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, so I feel like I've accomplished something. So it's uh, the week's going better <laughs> for me. Well, let me ask uh, the first question real quick. So when people hear agitation, they can think of many different things. I mean, I, I get agitated when my dog won't go out in the rain and instead decides to use the bathroom by the front door. But you can also be agitated by current events or your your spouse or friends like so can can you narrow down exactly what you mean when you say you're an expert on agitation yeah um so a great question uh you know one of the things that's interesting about um acute care psychiatry in general is a lot of the diagnostic terms we use also have more general popular uses like you know you can say oh i'm feeling depressed today but that doesn't mean that you have clinical depression for example and so uh, similarly with agitation, uh, there's, you know, feeling agitated, like you said, so you're, you're, you're in, a, in an argument with your significant other or uh, there's somebody ahead of you in a checkout line at the Safeway that's, that's driving you up the wall. Uh, you know, we all go through those periods of what we might colloquially call agitation. But when we're speaking about agitation, it's a clinical condition. It's a disease state, if you will. And a very loose definition of it is excessive verbal and or motor behavior. And again, that would be diagnosed in a clinical situation where somebody would typically be in a hospital emergency room on a psychiatric uh, inpatient ward uh, in a doctor's office, for example. And it usually means that somebody is, is having a difficult time and they are maybe uh, at, a, at the lower end hostile, pacing about, maybe even making you know, shadow boxing or, um, you know, starting to make very condescending statements all the way up to the very far end and most uh, unfortunate side of agitation, which is somebody who becomes violent and combative. And there's a lot of uh, in-betweens in that. And sometimes we actually think there's almost a, a sine wave kind of or a hockey stick, if you will, of how agitation increases where you can kind of be at that lower end. And uh, if something with your uh, overall uh, mental illness, be it uh, you know schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or just you have a, a very bad intoxication or withdrawal state, something can set you off from being mild to moderately agitated all the way up to very severely agitated, and that's when the violence and com combativeness hurts and happens. So uh, you know, typically what we want to do is help people out when they're at those lower ends, so that we can try to intercede before people get up to that that unfortunate violent part. Right. Now, Dr. Zeller, you mentioned agitation in conjunction with specific mental illnesses, but it comes with other things too. 
Yeah, it, it can happen with a bunch of different uh, medical conditions as well. Let's say you have a hyperthyroid condition. People who uh, their blood sugar is way off can get uh, agitated. People um, right after a seizure can have things like that. And, uh, you know, there, there's other things that can cause it that are neurologic illnesses or, or tumors and anything that's affecting the central nervous system can lead to agitation as well. Let me ask this. So my great grandmother uh, at the end of her life had Alzheimer's and she was a very sweet woman, never, never threw a punch in her life. But the last couple of years she spent in the nursing home, uh, she was deemed a violent patient. Uh, because she would hit or, or strike, et cetera. Now, it, it seems kind of funny, you know, a 90-pound, 85-year-old, 90-pound woman striking, but obviously that's, that's a concern. Would, would that be an example of agitation? Because to my family, she was just behaving violently. Yeah, no, it's absolutely an example of agitation, and agitation is quite uh, common in the more advanced stages of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And what's actually interesting about it is that what often will set people off and make uh, a de person with dementia to suffer from agitation uh, is an infection, most commonly a urinary tract infection. In fact, something along the lines of 75% or higher of agitation in dementia states is due to some kind of infectious state. Huh. Um, and so we see that all the time. And actually, what, what's interesting is you know, we will get, uh, you know, I work in a psychiatric ER and we will get transfers from the general ER. And it's not unusual for us to get a call from a medical emergency doctor who says, uh, well, here's a patient who's 90 years old, kind of like your great grandmother. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, they've got Alzheimer's and they were, they were actually doing fine until this morning uh, when they uh, threw their breakfast tray at the nursing staff. So we think they've caught schizophrenia. Wow, and that's that's a leap. A leap. <laughs> yeah, isn't it though? It's amazing how often I've heard an iteration of that, and and we have to say, have you checked to see, uh, checked urine, maybe see if they have a UTI, urinary tract infection, and often they call back, oh, wow, how did you figure that out? That's a, you're a miracle man. Um, but uh, uh, they definitely never, nobody catches schizophrenia as ninety, as I'm sure you're well aware. <laughs> but what's unfortunate sometimes. Because they think that, they'll actually put that on the chart, and then it goes back to the nursing home, and suddenly that's listed as one of their diagnoses, which makes it harder to get them placements and things like that. Wow. Wow, wow. So the, the interesting thing to me is that there's a big difference between if you decide that a patient is violent and you decide a patient is agitated. And I say that as a layperson because if somebody told me that somebody was violent, I would want to avoid them. I would be fearful of them. If somebody told me somebody was agitated, I would think, how can I de-escalate this situation and get them the help that they need? How can I get them on the same page? So I imagine in your line of work, getting a nursing staff or you know, people who are caring for patients to see people as agitated probably helps the patient a great deal because agitated people can be calmed down. Violent people are scary. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a fairly accurate description. I think uh, one of the things we've shown in our work is that even people who appear to be violent uh, at that end of agitation can often be de-escalated as well. And kind of, it depends on the individual. Some people are more, have, a, have more of a tendency to become violent at different stages than others. We always like to try to use de-escalation in every patient who's showing any degree of agitation, even if they're, they're screaming and, and trying to attack somebody. Because there's usually some something uh, some area there where we can reach and and help somebody to calm down 
But there is that, you know, one in a thousand patient who's so violent that there's, uh, you can't really help out. Or let's say if it's not really a neurologic or psychiatric condition, but it's actually delirium, uh, which would be a completely different medical diagnosis, you, th- those people unfortunately are so incoherent that uh, you're not going to be able to help talk them down. But uh, something that's more of an agitation from uh, from a not, that's not delirium, uh, we can usually deescalate to some extent because uh, with the work that we've done in hospitals, uh, we've shown that uh, places that used to put people who were agitated in physical restraints, sometimes 25, 30, even as high as 50% of patients with these kind of conditions, we've shown that you can actually deescalate more than 90% of them and avoid physical restraints 95 times out of 100, sometimes even higher. Some of the places we're working with now only average one out of every 1,000 patients needing physical restraints. So, so de-escalation is an incredible tool to have. It's a, it's a fairly uh, easy one for most people to, to learn, and it has amazing results. We, you know, like I said, when a person has delirium, they're very incoherent. Uh, like I said, you're not going to be able to reach most of them. And a lot of uh, medical personnel, doctors, nurses have said to me, well, what difference does it make if you put the agitated person in restraints and medicate them? They're, they're not going to remember any of this anyway. And actually, it's just the opposite. In our work with people who've been through agitation episodes, and we talk to them later about it, they remember every step with amazing clarity. And with that understanding, we know that both A, that we can help to de-escalate somebody because they are on some level thinking fairly clearly, and B, that we don't want to use coercive or painful, difficult techniques that they're going to remember later that's going to make them distrust personnel or, or feel like they're adversaries rather than an ally. Very true. I, I love that you're talking about the, the trauma spectrum and how best to serve patients. We're going to step away for just a moment. When we come back, we're going to learn more about Dr. Zeller and we're going to learn de-escalation skills. So we'll see you in 30. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. Welcome back, everyone. We are here discussing agitation with Dr. Scott Zeller. Dr. Zeller, would you please tell our listening audience a little bit more about yourself? Oh, sure. Thanks uh, very much. I've actually been involved in emergency psychiatry for over 30 years now. Uh, I used to be president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, and I've been involved in writing a number of textbooks on the subjects of both general emergency psychiatry and agitation in particular have a, a new textbook that just came out a few months ago called The Diagnosis and Management of Agitation from the good folks at Cambridge University Press, available at uh, Amazon.com and all finer booksellers everywhere. The other thing I've been involved in, uh, agitation has been my main interest in research and also in uh, just helping to improve interventions and techniques for healthcare professionals and just people in general. Uh, I led the both the uh, United States and the international guidelines projects on the uh, the management and interventions of agitation, which were both published in the last five years. Excellent. Thank you. We'll certainly provide a link to your, to your new book on Amazon. Now, before the break, we were discussing agitation in ER settings primarily. 
most of our listeners, of course, are not going to be in that situation. So when we encounter somebody out in the non-medical world who is agitated, how can we de-escalate their behavior? Well, I think one of the first things to remember in working with somebody who's agitated, whether it's in anywhere in the community, doesn't have to be in a healthcare setting. These techniques are very general and, and very simple. A lot of times people go, hey, you didn't tell me anything. It's all common sense. And a lot of it really is common sense. The problem usually is in the heat of the moment, you're not able to use common sense because you're so caught up in what's going on and you're not able to stop and think rationally. So it's better to kind of have these bits of knowledge in mind before something like this comes, uh, comes your way. Probably the most overarching important thing about working with somebody who's agitated, and if there's anything anyone listening today takes home from this, here's the one take-home message. If somebody is agitated, don't be agitated back to them. Uh, you know, so many people, when somebody's agitated, uh, adopt the oh yeah technique, which never seems to help anybody. So, so coming back at somebody and if they're screaming, you screaming back at them doesn't work very well. In fact, you need to do exactly the opposite. Be very calm, be very soft-spoken, kind of face the person in a, in a non-threatening way, kind of maybe have your arms at your side, show that you're not clenching your fist, you're not holding a weapon, uh, anything like that. Recognize that when a lot of times when people become agitated, it's not that they're bad people. They're, they're usually good people having bad symptoms of a bad disease state. And that's what's causing the agitation. So it's more of a, of we need to understand and realize that these folks are suffering and the agitation is the way that that suffering is being expressed. A lot of times it's serious paranoia or psychosis or, or delusions that's causing the agitation. And people often will think I'm in danger. These people want to hurt me. And you know, when we go back to basic biology, we as animals usually respond to a perception of danger in one of two ways, fight or flight. And so an agitated person is usually doing one of those two things. They're either trying to get out of there and uh, may have to try, try to run through the red robin line to get, get to anywhere they're, they're going to go. And that's, that's kind of causing danger or they're, they're getting, they're deciding that they are going to have to fight their way through whatever this danger is. So either way, it's, it's, it causes risk for danger to everybody who's around, but it also is a risk for danger to the person themselves because, you know, they, if they're trying to get out and they run headlong into a locked door, that's not going to be a good thing if they start punching a wall or whatever. Uh, usually agitated people, uh, unfortunately, end up hurting themselves more than those around, but they're also a risk to anybody who's around at the time. One of the things you said when it comes to de-escalation, of course, you know, don't yell back. Now, I'll be the first to admit that that, that can be a difficult thing to do. I, I consider myself to be a pretty calm guy, but if, if somebody is making themselves large, they're yelling, they're screaming, and, and I'm scared, what technique can I use to, to not have that knee-jerk reaction? I, you know, my gut would tell me to yell back and try to be bigger. Right. You know, yeah. And it's not a mountain lion on the hiking trail. So, right. so it's, that, that's not the, per, the preferred method. So here's some of the, some of the real basics of, of de-escalation. The first I kind of told you is that you need to be calm and show that you're not a threat. The second is to give people a lot of space. And that's something you can normally automatically think of. You, if somebody's um, you know, yelling at you and everything, don't crowd them. It should be easy enough to think, take a few steps back. And that's not showing fear or anything like that. It's giving people some room 
letting them understand that you're not, you know, once again, that you're not endangering them, you're giving them some space. Usually you want to give at least a couple leg lengths of space from them. A little bit more if they tell you to back off. It's all fine. The other is that you don't want to stand between them and what we'd say is a line of egress or basically a way out. If they think you're, you know, they're in danger and they need to get out of there and you're standing between them and a doorway, there's a good chance you're going to get run into. So it might be a better idea to when you're talking to them, be kind of diagonal from the door so that they can still see that door is there. Now, you probably don't want them to try to run out that door, but somewhere deep in their recesses of their head, they're seeing that they've got a way out and that you're not blocking it. And that will help them to calm down as well. And that brings to one of the basic tenets of de-escalation, and that is helping people to regain control. Whenever you talk to people after an agitation episode, they always talk about when they lost control. And what we want to do is help them to regain control. And sometimes helping to regain control is understanding that they're not in danger, that this is a safe place, and that also offering them choices because when you're able to choose and have agency, then you feel like you have some control over what's going on. So the first part is that you want to say slow, clear, short sentences that you're safe. This is a safe place. We're here to help you, not to hurt you. You're going to be okay. And then what do you need? How can we help you? Is there something I can do for you? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you need a place to sit down? Do you want to walk away from where we are and get away from whatever situation there might be there and get somewhere where we can talk about what's happening? That is great advice. And that's a, that's a great place to end the show. There's, we, we learned a lot. We, we learned yeah, we did. a lot of information in a, in a quick period of time. So to all our listeners, you should rewind and listen to it again, because there was a, <laughs> a lot of great information there that can uh, help you in your, in your day-to-day lives. And of course, if you work in an emergency psychiatric ward, uh, this, this advice is, is all the better. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week free of convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych central. Everybody, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email TalkBack at PsychCentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
one in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.